You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. This is episode 12. Yes. I think. Episode 12. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we're back. This is our final episode of the first season. So this is just going to be a mini episode with me and Sally talking a little bit and playing some feedback from former listeners and all of that and giving you a preview of our second season. Very exciting. So before we do all that, we want to ask you to go into iTunes and give us a rating. Let us know how you've liked the first season, what we can do, what, what we can do to improve, how we can um uh, fix what we've done not so well this past season, but also let us know what you've enjoyed so we can make sure we keep doing that for next season. So yeah, go into iTunes, give us a rating. It helps us uh, climb the ranks in the iTunes store and increases visibility of our podcast. And when it says to give a rating, that's where you can also provide a review. So it's not two separate buttons, right? Sometimes it's confusing. Right. Yeah, it's kind of hard to find in the app, actually. We've had several people ask us how you get there, but basically... If you go online and give a rating, then it'll also give you an option to give a review if you want. Right. So if you go on your computer, open up iTunes, and go in that way, it's pretty self-explanatory. On your app, you can search our podcast in the uh, podcast iTunes store, and once that comes up, you can go to reviews, and you can click write a review at the bottom of that page. So... Do that, please. We'd appreciate it, and hopefully that will help us drive listenership. All right, so this is the end of season one. What have you thought about it so far, Sally? I think it's been fun. Um, we've gotten to, to talk to a lot of really interesting people in different walks of life, and I've learned a lot uh, from very smart people, so yeah, yeah, one I thing, hope our listeners have too. One thing I didn't take into account was how much editing time would be on the back end of these things. Yes. And uh, it's not because we're culling, it's not because we're like making people sound better than they do. It's just because the conversations that we have with all of our guests, they just run so long yeah, because we have so organic. much to talk about. Yeah. So then our challenge is to try and find, you know, out of an hour and a half long plus conversation, what 45 to 60 minutes are we can, right. we can without best making pull from it that. sound cut and spliced. And right, everything. exactly. So. Hopefully yeah. the editing has been successful, but it's been a lot of time on our own, <laughs> but that's okay. We're not going to stop doing this. We're having fun and we're looking forward to season two when that comes up. Yes. Which will be in September. So we'll talk about that in just a minute, but before we do, we want to play some feedback that a couple of our listeners provided. You'll recognize one of them, Muriel from a previous episode where Muriel talked with us about the death penalty and being a PhD student uh, and a mom at the same time which is a challenge. But uh, so you recognize Muriel. She weighed in on our conversation with Nathan and Sadie about gender dysphoria. From episode and, 10. And Carolyn also weighed in on the same no, conversation. episode 9. Sorry. <laughs> right. Episode. Carolyn also weighed in. Right. On the same topic, uh, different take on the same topic. Uh, they didn't disagree with each other. They just decided to contribute to different parts of the conversation. So we'll play those. All right. First step, let's listen to Carolyn. Thanks, Sally. I thought that Sadie's perspective on gender dysphoria was very interesting and certainly refreshing. Um, and I can agree with her call for everyone to be more compassionate towards ind individual suffering from this illness. Um, the question then remains, what do we do with this from a 
policy perspective? What does compassion require from a policy perspective? And it seems that there's a movement going on in the United States today that suggests that compassion on people suffering from gender dysphoria requires, therefore, never making gender distinctions. And perhaps this is seen most clearly in the movement in public schools and elsewhere to not even have gender bathrooms. So it seems that societally we're so concerned with not offending the few that are suffering that we're reordering all of society for the many. So I just wondered about your thoughts on that. I think that Carolyn makes a good point here. Um, I think on the one hand, I agree that compassion for those who are struggling to define their gender would lead us to not want to make gender distinctions at all for fear of offending people or just adding to their confusion and pressuring young children, for example, to have to choose a gender um, when they just when they're going to school. But on the other hand, I think that the gender neutrality movement is maybe a little bit more um, diverse in its agenda. Um, just based off of some things that I've read by Christina Hoff Summers, um, a researcher and a writer, it seems that in some countries other than the U.S., maybe maybe not in the U.S., but at least in Scandinavia Sweden, Sweden, specifically, I think, yeah, yeah. They, the gender neutrality movement is more of an anti-gender um, movement than a choose whatever gender you feel best fits you whenever you can choose, whenever right. you feel like you can identify it. So, so yeah, maybe she's right about America. I think the gender neutrality movement at large, perhaps, um, doesn't, isn't necessarily based in a compassion for people choosing a gender, but actually a kind of a fear of gender differences altogether. Yeah, I was really intrigued to hear Carolyn's comment, uh, drawing a potential link between society's embrace of transgenderism and the movement to create gender neutral schools in bathrooms. And I think there might be something to it, but in a bigger way, I also think that transgenderism is rooted in a in a strong recognition of the differences between sexes because and a positive recognition right a positive recognition that you know men are very different from women males are very different from females and so in that way you know for example um, transgender advocates want to kind of liberate a person who is experiencing life as a male to experience that life in a male body rather than the female body into which that person is born so I'm not so sure it's the same. It's it's the same principle at work in both movements. Um, I do wonder, however, if both movements are born out of the same kind of societal gender dysphoria that that I think our society experiences. That is, we don't have a healthy way to conceptualize what it is to be a male or a female person, a man or a woman. Here's Muriel on that very topic. I thought that your conversation about it was good and really thoughtful. Um, but I think you're wrong about the use of the term, <laughs> the use of the term gender identity disorder as opposed to gender dysphoria. Um, for a couple of reasons that I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on, because I've thought them through a fair amount, but not totally, but I think, I think you're wrong. And here's why. Um, so if you start from the first principle of what I mean, it's tricky because gender is such a loaded term, but so if you start from the first principle of the human person, right, and we know that the body is the manifestation of the person in the world, right? So there's, like, the thing that is a human person. So there's Zach or Sally, and you have, you are both your bodies and your souls. Um, but 
from so the way that I would see it, as St. Thomas talks about this, how the the matter of a thing is fitted to the form and not the other way around. Form in uh, Aristotelian metaphysics means the ordering character of the thing, so that would be your soul. So your soul gives the form to your body, which is the matter. Um, and so your your male physical body is suited to the form of that, which is your soul, right? So, so then what we have are masculine human persons and feminine human persons. Um, generally speaking, masculine human persons have male bodies and feminine human persons have female. But I would argue that the existence of a male body or the existence of a female body does not determine the person, right? I would, I would argue that your soul makes you who you are and your body is fitted to it and is is just as much you as your soul. I think the form is primary to the matter, even though they coexist. So the problem that I see with using the term gender identity disorder is that it seems to indicate that there is a correct way of experiencing the world as a masculine human person and a correct way of experiencing the world as a feminine human person, such that if you're a masculine human person and you feel a certain way, there's something wrong with you. So when you say gender identity disorder, to indicate that there is some kind of a disorder, what do you mean? Like, it's a person with a male human body who wants to paint his nails? No, so I'm glad Muriel has given me the opportunity to clarify my comment previously on this. When I when I referenced the possibility that using gender identity disorder was a more helpful category than gender dysphoria or a more helpful label, I was not suggesting that uh, gender identity disorder should actually refer to instances in which, for example, a male wants to paint his nails. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting is that just the word disorder helps us to understand that when someone is convinced that they are of a sex to which their anatomy is mismatched, that there is something wrong there. Um, and that that person is then in need of our help and obviously our compassion. And I think is saying that this is a disorder is more helpful than just saying dysphoria, because dysphoria is about uh, someone just having a, an incongruous experience, basically. And this is more about experience. This is about the natural order uh, being out of order or disordered. Right. Yes. Okay. So that is that's helpful. And as you said that, it occurred to me that I think maybe what I object to is the way that our culture broadly talks about the question of sex and gender. So, like, I, because I guess I I've never experienced the thing that I like about using gender dysphoria, which I've never experienced. So I can't speak to it from any kind of personal, you know experience just from what I've read and what I understand is that it refers to the experience of the person. Do I think that there is such a thing as a man trapped in a woman's body? Well, no, because I don't think that there's such a thing as manness that's totally distinct from the, the physical person, because I think that the person is unity. But I think the problem is that the way our culture talks about it is very reductive of the human experience, so that if you are a, if you, if you are a masculine human person and you experience the world in certain ways, then you are told that that's the wrong way for a man to experience the world, and so then you think you must be a woman. Right? So, like, 
Caitlyn Jenner in the interview that she did with Diane Sawyer before revealing herself to the world as Caitlyn talked about how she was really excited to like have girls nights and wear nail polish and things like that. And I'm not saying that that is the totality of her understanding of what it means to be a woman, but it kind of gave me a, I don't know, it seemed to me like, and I had read an article about this too, that I found really interesting, um, where the author basically says, well, that's not what makes a woman a woman. So if that's your conception of what it means to be female, then, then the, that's where the problem is and not in the person. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And that's, if I'm understanding you correctly, that's a good point that uh, it's important to remember that one's maleness or femaleness is not simply found in how well their experience conforms to our culture stereotype of a man's or a woman's activity. Yeah, I agree. I think that our cultures, our language when we that our culture uses to talk about gender has really been warped and diluted by what the media presents to us as an example of a man or a woman. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you watch TV shows, you think that men are people who like um, you know, going out, sleeping with a lot of women, playing a lot of sports, etc., and women are people who like going out and going shopping and getting dressed up for girls night out and things yeah, like that. Or read magazines, anything, all types of forms of media. Right. And, you know, I think really the point is that that's such a one dimensional view of what maleness and femaleness is. Yeah. We're so much more complex as human beings that you can't just, you can't just shrink it down to one definition or one activity or one set of activities. And it looks absurd when you try to shrink it down to such a one such a single dimension like that yeah so well said muriel all right we have one more piece of feedback in our inbox and this is from joshua who was on our podcast before in episode eight he's the aspiring biotechnologist yes and he clearly listens to the podcast which we really appreciate joshua he had some feedback on our podcast with ostrid and aaron in episode 10 he says that he learned a lot about hops and farming and hop I did farming. Too. <laughs> yes me too um but regarding our discussion on jobs and machines he says i think it's important to consider two questions one was man made for work or work made for man? And two, do jobs exist to keep people busy or to fulfill human needs? What do we think about this? Yeah, these are really interesting questions. I appreciate your uh, contribution here, Joshua. And I think actually, at least the second one came up a little bit in our conversation with Astrid and Aaron. And I think by implication, the first one does, because if we talk about sort of what flourishing human life looks like and whether or not that includes work, I think that tells us a little bit about whether or not, you know, work was made for man or man for work. So I think we could unpack that. We, we could, you know, take an entire podcast and unpack that question. But I think in, in the end, what it comes down to is um, kind of what we were talking about with Oscar and Aaron in that, you know, we could look at, we could envision a world where machines did all the work and then humans could be left to do what they wanted to do, left to their own devices. And that could mean people who still try to create things, make beautiful art or music, for example. Or people uh, who just veg out and play video time. games yeah. and yeah, do nothing of value. Um, and I think really that, that kind of helps to set up these two alternative futures that in my mind, for me, helps me come to a conclusion. And I think that, um, that, you know, work is something that is part of our human flourishing. Uh, so in that sense, I, that's, yeah. How was the question worded again? What did Joshua say? Was man made for work or work made for man? No, the second question. Oh, do jobs exist to keep people busy or to fulfill human needs? Yeah. So fulfill human needs. I think yeah, it's, I definitely agree that. 
Yeah, and I think it's really even if I could tweak the question, it's a little bit. It's a little, it's about a little bit more than needs. Mm-hmm. I think it's about to fulfill human destiny sounds really kind of um, to <laughs> enable epic. our human flourishing. Yeah, I think that human flourishing involves work. Yeah. And work involves productivity, which uh, really, I think, in its fullest sense, involves creativity and creating things and specifically things of beauty. Yeah. So, but thank you for that, Thanks, Joshua. Joshua. Good questions. He also says at the end of his email, there was mention on the podcast of you all shutting down vernacular. Just so you know, I would not hesitate to invest $100 for a 1% stake in your venture, immediately valuing it at ten thousand dollars that's that's, very generous if that's what it takes to keep it alive i'm dead serious i enjoy your show that much even if it feels like a lot of work please don't give up thank you joshua that's very kind of you Well, Joshua, I'm happy to announce that we are not shutting down Vernacular Podcast. We are going to be around for season two. (laughs) But nor are we taking your money. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, we appreciate the offer, but we are not accepting investors at this time, mostly because we are not making any money at this time. (laughs) And we don't project to make any money in the near to mid to long term. (laughs) If things change... We will definitely let you know. We'll, you'll be the first. Right. To if we get bought out by, you know, BuzzFeed. Gimlet Media. Right. Gimlet Media. Always, always possible, I guess. NPR. That'd be the dream. <laughs> so, yeah, season two, we will be back. But you'll also be recognizing some changes uh, when you do listen to episode one of season two. Yes. We will not be... It will not be business as usual when we come back uh, in September. Right. So when we started Vernacular, we thought it would be really great to have a show where we just talked about everything. And we still want to do that. We still believe in that mission. And we want to talk about everything with uh, people from all walks, people of all types. And uh, we're going to be doing that, but just a little bit differently than what we've been doing. So in Yeah, we're going to change up the format a little bit. Right. So in season one, everything you've listened to so far, we've basically had one or two guests on per show. And if, if we've had two guests on, it's been the two guests talking to us at the same time about the same topics, which has been great and a lot of fun, but we think we can make it better. Yeah. So we're going to have possibly more than two guests on a show, maybe three, maybe four, talking maybe about- Maybe 17. <laughs> not 17. Okay talking about different topics at different times. So we might talk to one person about current events, and then we might talk to another person about some lifestyle topic, and then we might interview someone. Or we might host a debate between two or three parties who have very different views on the same topic. Or we might have two people talk to us about one topic for the entire episode. Basically, it's going to be a little bit different from what you've been used to, but hopefully you'll like it better and we'll appreciate your feedback. Just think of it as the Vernacular Podcast Variety Show. Another thing we're doing is bringing on vernacular contributors, so people who will be regularly contributing to the podcast. And some of these names and voices you'll recognize from previous episodes because we've had them on as guests already, and we had so much been talking with them that we asked them to come back and be regular contributors. Yes, but we're not going to tell you who they are yet because you're going to just have to listen to season two to find out. You'll have to be surprised. (laughs) We have to keep some things under wraps. So that's, what, that's what's coming up for season two. We are very excited to kick it off. It'll be released uh, right around Labor Day weekend. So uh, we're shooting for the Friday before Labor Day weekend. So you can have Vernacular Podcast season two, episode one to listen to wherever you're driving. Oh, and another change, we're going to start releasing episodes every other week instead of every week. Oh, that's an important one. Yeah. So one of the lessons learned from season one is the editing work is intensive just because you have to, you have to find... You have to be selective about material just for time's sake, and it's 
hard to make those decisions to figure out what to throw out. So we're going to be giving ourselves a little bit more time to do that, especially since we'll be talking to more people in each episode. So we'll be releasing on a every other week schedule on an every other week schedule. Yeah. <laughs> better grammar. I think that's all we have to announce. Yeah, I think so. I think that about covers it. So again, if you want to be on our show, please let us know. Don't feel intimidated by needing to talk about everything under the sun. If you have one topic you want to talk about, contact us. Yep. These changes to the podcast are reflected on our website. So you can go check out our tweaked website to find a description (laughs) of what season two is going to be about and a revised questionnaire if you want to contribute to a topic that's of interest to you. Yep. And you can still give us feedback through email. Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash vernacularpod or just at vernacularpod and facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. Thank you so much for listening to us in season one. It's been a great adventure and we look forward to hopefully doing an even better job in season two. So stick around for that. Our closing music is from Jordan Short and his band. If you want to hear more from Jordan, you can listen to episode five where we talk to him and his lovely wife, Catherine. And we'll be using his music in season two as well. um, Because it's just so good. Yeah, it's just great. So we may not be mentioning his name, but just don't forget Jordan Short in episode five. (laughs) All right, for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side. Feeling better than ever. When you're with me tonight.